Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. Today, my guest is Ashley Abercrombie. Ashley's story is one of a woman who fought to overcome addiction, rape, abortion, perfectionism, and dysfunctional relationships to become the honest, whole, and free woman that God created her to be. In our conversation, Ashley gets real and opens up about her unexpected pregnancy and how she made the decision to abort the baby. She talks about how that decision radically affected her life and nearly took her will to live. Ashley goes on to share about her recovery process and receiving God's forgiveness that led her to become an advocate for women today by creating safe spaces for healing and recovery for others. Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast to tell your story today, Ashley. I usually start off by having guests tell a little bit about themselves, but if you don't mind, for you, I think I might just read your paragraph on your website. Is that okay? Um, Because I think it just like, this is what got my attention with you and your story. And when I thought I like this girl, I want to, I want to talk more to her. So, so it's, um, so Ashley Abercrombie fought to overcome addiction, rape, abortion, perfectionism, and dysfunctional relationships to become an honest, whole and free woman. Most days she wore a mask more than half of her life and considers herself too old and too annoyed to ever put that on again. Um, and then it goes on to say you've been in an urban multicultural, um, racial diverse ministry for more than 15 years. Um, you're a podcaster, an author, a blogger, um, a co-pastor, and then you have a book coming out. So you have gone from a lot of hurt to a lot of healing to get to that point in your life. Yeah. Um, and that's what I want to talk about today. So, um, yeah. Are you ready for that? I'm so ready and I'm so honored to be on this podcast with you. Thank you for the invitation to come and speak to you and to your audience. Absolutely. And like I just read, you have gone through, um, a lot of hurts in your life. Um, and the timing of this, I know we had kind of briefly mentioned, Oh, should we wait till your book comes out to talk? But, (laughs) but with one of your hurts being, um, you've had an abortion. And I think right now in this time and the discussion that this society is in, I think that's something that would really is um, appropriate for you to talk about and share about today. So we're going to talk about all of your story, but I think we'll hone in a little bit more on that part of it. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So why don't you start, Ashley, just take us back um, to your story, just kind of, um, you know, where you grew up and how your story began. Awesome. Well, I grew up in a beautiful little town in North Carolina. So I'm actually from the Southeast of the United States and loved it. It was a beautiful hometown, like absolutely a place where you could, you know, leave your doors unlocked and like play in the, in the neighborhood. And it was awesome. I really enjoyed so much of my upbringing in that small town. Um, our literal population was like 14,000 people. So okay, very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which I loved. Um, but part of me growing up there is that you're kind of in small towns, what I discovered for my personal self is that you're known by everyone, but not really known at all. And so there's this strange tension of everybody knows who you are. They know who your family is. They know what you're doing in school. They know if you were out when you weren't supposed to be there, but they don't actually always know what's happening within the recesses of the soul and what's really going on um, in somebody's life and in their heart and in their mind. And so what that taught me is that pretending and performing was a way for me to operate in the world. And so I wore a mask, you know, and pretended even if things were really hurting, if I was really going through a difficult thing, I would wear a mask and pretend like everything was okay and find my value and achievements or sports or being able to excel in academia. Um, And because of that, I never really allowed myself to operate in reciprocal life-giving relationships. You know, I very often was the person that people would come to for advice or wisdom or to sort of unpack some things that might be happening in their life. But I very rarely was the person who could say, I have a need. I I want to be vulnerable and share with you that I'm actually not doing well, that I'm really hurting. And so how this kind of all came to a head is when I left my hometown for college and the summer before I left for college, I went to school um, in the triad area. So I didn't go very far, just, just a couple of hours South in North Carolina to go to school. And the campus was over 40,000 people. So you're like, go from, yeah, like, can you imagine going from a 14,000 person town to a campus of 40,000 people? And so I was like, man, I'm totally overwhelmed here. And right before I left for school, I kind of was sick of doing the people pleasing thing. And I thought my pendulum was swinging, you know, where it's like, okay, I've done everything I'm supposed to do for other people. I have sought 
their approval. I have asked their opinions and done whatever they said. And then I started to swing the other way where I was like, I don't care. I'm just going to do whatever I want because I've never been able to do that. And I'm just going to do the irresponsible thing. Mm -hmm. And as that pendulum was swinging, I entered this huge campus and then also, um, had a lot of responsibility. I had an academic scholarship that I needed to keep a certain GPA. I chose to then play sports. I was on our crew team for a couple of years at the campus I was on, so I was a rower. Um, got involved on campus in a couple of things, so already taking on responsibilities that I had had in my small town um, in my high school. But the difference was is that I was breaking down emotionally. I was no longer able to put on the facade. My mask was crumbling. And so I began to use drugs, um, use uh, smoking weed, using ecstasy pills, taking other pills, lacing weed, you know, and I began to drink like crazy. And then I also developed an eating disorder to sort of cope with life. And as a person who didn't know how to express that I had need, one of the ways that I got out my emotions was through self-harm. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's like, oh, it makes me sad hearing this because I feel like this yeah. is, I mean, some of your story is my story, but some of it's right. so, it's so many women's story. And it's like, I have, I have a teenage daughter right now that is just oh, uh, yeah. falling into that of like the perfectionism and living it to the world. And, mm-hmm. um, it's like, oh, how, and I think part of us as a church is to blame for that. I mean, you were from a small town and felt that, but I think the church can be equally responsible for putting that pressure on. Um, did you grow up in the church then? Was that a role in your, was that an influence in your life during that time? Or was that just another, something that created more pressure? No, it actually really was a beautiful part of my experience. So my family didn't go to church, but my great, great aunt fairy, um, you know, my mom was a believer, like went to church as a child, but then she also worked nights as a nurse. So she couldn't come on Sunday mornings, but um, my great, great aunt fairy took me to church. She was the only other like believer in my life that was going to church. And so she would take me on Sunday mornings. And for the longest time, it was the sweetest, softest place for me to land. Like Mm -hmm. I would open the church with her. We had a little library. We set up the office. Altar. We did the flowers, like, and our um, our Reverend Freeman, that was his name, was just so lovely and gentle with me, and was like another father in my life. Um, but as I became a teenager, that's where it kind of fell apart because we didn't have a youth group, um, we didn't have a next sort of place for me to go, and all these beautiful people who had been my Sunday school teachers no longer knew how to relate to me as a young woman, um, and I didn't know how to integrate my faith with my lived experience outside of Sunday, um, and so that that became a challenge for me. I had questions, you know, as a teenager, I had doubts, I had insecurities, I had things I was dealing with, and um, I just had a more black and white view of faith. And in my immaturity, couldn't understand nuance, couldn't understand that God could still love me when I make mistakes, couldn't understand that I could be struggling with things. And that didn't mean I had to leave the church or, you know, I could be in relationship with people, even though I was broken. And I didn't understand that as a young person and sort of the town I grew up in and the cultural dynamics that I was in sort of fostered that um, in all of us in our brokenness, being unable to share with one another and be honest with one another and operate in integrity. You know, not everybody's raised with that skill set, right? Like right. You to learn it the hard way for most people. <laughs> right, exactly. And so then when you got to college and started using mm-hmm. all, doing all these other things to cope, did that just yeah. cause more shame for you? Um, I assume it made you want to hide yourself even more from the church and God and all that, or how did that play out? Yeah. I mean, you know what? I have such an interesting experience because I know that some people kind of grow up in the purity movement of the <clears throat> church and where everything is very, you know, um, God is mad at you all the time. And there's hellfire and brimstone. And I I wasn't quite raised with that, but I very viscerally understand the issue of shame. And so, yes, I absolutely did experience shame and more just because I let myself down. I let my convictions down. I let, um, you know, my, my family down in a sense, because I was like, I can't keep up with the scholarship. I'm turning into an addict. So yeah, I definitely experienced shame. But the beautiful part of that is that I've always had a little bit of a rebellious streak, you know, where it's like, instead of being like, oh, I'm just going to stay in this mess and try to pretend and perform to what the church thinks. It was more like, okay, forget it. I'm going to give up my scholarship, forget the church. Like I just walked away from everything. I'm like, I'm going to live the life that I'm going to live. And I'm not going to worry about anything else. Like if the church can't handle broken parts of me, if this person can't handle, handle broken parts of me, forget them. Like I don't want them anymore, you know? Right. So I definitely had a bit of a rebellious streak, which in some ways served me because Um, I ended up just getting really honest with God. You know, I can remember this moment in a parking lot. I had 
driven around the town and um, where my school was and just was smoking cigarettes and just like, what in the world is going on? It started dumping buckets of rain. So I just pulled my car over. I was sobbing like crazy, just crying hysterically. And I just started shouting like, where are you, God? Like, where mm. are you, God? Like, where are you in the midst of all this pain? Where are you in the midst of all of this? And what I experienced through that is this powerful presence of God that just came. And him being there with me just taught me a great lesson where it was like, man, I don't have to clean myself up to come to God. I don't have to have all the right answers to be here with God. I don't have to have it all together to come to him. And in his presence, I started to gain strength to say, like, my life is utterly unmanageable. I am completely out of control. And God, would you help me? And that's what I I think he does in our stories so often is he brings us down to that very, like, lowest point to finally just cry out to him and be real. Yes. Um, And I think if you don't mind sharing, you also, I know you shared in the past, just you also experienced a rape during this time. Is that correct? Yes, that is right. That happened my sophomore year of college. Um, And it was a person I knew, but somebody I didn't know well on campus. And the next morning I just got up and was like, I never want to think about this, talk about this again. And I just went to work as if it hadn't happened. So, you know, and and that... Oh my goodness. And that's a huge mask. I mean, my gosh, to just put that on and act like it never happened. Yes. Um, And And of course the masking came out more in the eating disorder and drugs and alcohol getting worse. So there were definitely ways that I coped, but speaking and sharing in a healthy way was not one of them. So after um, that horrific experience for you, is that when you left campus then when you said Mm -hmm. "I'm, I'm done and I'm leaving? Yep. I went home for a little bit to be with my mom and my brother um, for about six months. And then I made the decision to move to Los Angeles, which is where I would spend the next 15 years. And, um, you know, you never most people don't think about going to a place like L.A. and discovering like God's purpose for you. (laughs) Right. Right. You don't consider going there and getting sober and all of that. Yeah. Like nobody would ever think that's the spot, but God was so sweet to me. I ended up just working at a restaurant and five people on that staff went to the church that I became a part of for 15 years. And okay. only one of them was like one of those crazy Christians that I had grown up with where it's like, okay. if you just knew Jesus, if you just knew Jesus, you right. know, so I'm like, well, Hey, four out of five is pretty good. So eventually after going out to dinners with them and coffees with them and they would come out at nighttime with me and they would, I would party and rage and get drunk and they wouldn't, they'd drink Diet Cokes and drive me home. And it was the first time that men in my life didn't want to sleep with me. Like they actually treated me like a sister. And then after a couple of months, I was like, can I just come to your church? Like I've actually never met believers who are this kind and loving. I've never met believers who didn't shame me or call me names. Like, can I come to church with you? So, Um, so they would, so they would pick you up from a night of partying and drinking and not judge or condemn you, but just show you love. I mean, that, that is a huge, Um, that's a huge example of love and what the church needs more of. Oh my gosh. I couldn't believe it. And I, you know, I don't think it's a missionary strategy for everyone. Like some people that would do more harm to their, their personal life than good, but for them, it was the thing God lead, God was leading them to do by the Holy Spirit. And it was so effective in my life. Like I just learned again, God was reaffirming the fact that I don't need to clean myself up to be in relationship mm-hmm. with him. And he was reaffirming again, that I don't have to have it all together to be a part of the body of Christ. And through their witness and their example, that's what I learned where it's like, God loves me as I am. And that started to shift and change everything in my heart and soul. Right. And it's a process. So you went, oh, to, you went oh, to church with them, still, <laughs> really broken and her right. and having all these hangups and habits. Um, but you went yes. and tell me how that played out then with the mask, um, starting that you started the healing process. Cause it's I a did. long one. Oh, it's a long one. I mean, I'm still in it, right? Like recovery is mm-hmm. a life journey. <laughs> <laughs> like we never are perfect till we meet Christ um, and see him face to face. But yeah, it was, it was a really great, I told you already that I had a little bit of a rebellious streak. So it was a really great experience because I was at this place where I'm like, I've tried everything. Like I've tried guys, I've tried relationships, I've tried drugs, I've tried alcohol, I've tried being cool at different parties and clubs. Like I've done it all, you know, and I wanted some truth. I wanted something that could really satisfy my soul. And I so admired the level of freedom and joy that I saw in them. And when I went to their church, um, 
the, uh, maybe it was the second or third time I was there, there was a popular evangelist who was speaking and I didn't even know women could speak in church. And I know that's not true for everyone who might be listening. People have different theologies about that and I'm totally okay with it. But at this church, you know, seeing a woman on the platform was like, wow. And then not only was there a woman on the platform preaching, but she was sharing her story. And I was like, what? You can share your story in church? God cares about that? Are you kidding me? Like, why is she talking about this? And at the end of her message, I just felt so strongly. She, she opened it up for people to come down with the prayer team. And that's the day that I chose to dedicate my life to Christ again. Wow. And it was a little seed of ministry in my heart. Yeah. And what an example of like the power of just being real and honest in your story. Cause just her doing that and not putting on a mask or face was like, Oh my gosh, we can talk about this and it's okay. Um, and God loves me. And so, like you said, that planted the seed in your heart, um, too, for what God had planned for you, which is so cool. It was really amazing. Okay. So during that time you, um, rededicate your life to the Lord and Mm -hmm. then do you actively start working on like, okay, these masks and my addictions or, um, how does that start to play out? Yeah, I think it was, you know, I was a little bit more on the radical side of life change. Like I immediately wanted to start doing a couple of things. Um, and I, you know, Jesus transformed my heart in a moment, but we got to walk out that transformation. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the process part. Um, and I started, they had a great group called Monday night solution and it was like on boundaries and safe people. And just in general, uh, living a life of integrity and wholeness. And so I began to be there every single Monday night. And then one of the steps in the process of recovery is finding a place to serve. So I thought, well, let me see if I can serve somewhere in the church. And I had um, always loved music, been part of choirs and different things as I was growing up. So I thought, man, it would be so great to be part of the worship team. And so I sat down with the, the worship director at the time. And I just, you know, I wanted to be bluntly honest with her. Cause I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to do what I did back home. I don't want to ever have a mask on in my faith. So I just sat her down and just said, look, here's what I'm dealing with. I'm in vocal, vocal repair therapy for my, for my eating disorder, bulimia. Mm-hmm. I am uh, overcoming drugs and alcohol. Like I haven't used drugs in X amount of time. I no longer um, struggle with abusing the substance of alcohol, but man, I still, like, I'm a mess. I got a lot of temptations going mm-hmm. on in my life. I'm still in a relationship that's not, not quite right. I had stopped having sex at that point. Cause that's actually one of the first things God asked me to do by the whole, or I felt God asked me to do um, was that. And so I, you know, I was, I was on the journey and she, I said, so if you want me here, fabulous. And if yeah. you don't, it's cool. I'm a leave. Like it's no, no hard feelings. And but for you to be able to say all that, I mean, that shows you'd already grown a lot and started the healing process. Yeah. Friend, I was just exhausted. I'm like, I can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, I don't care. You know, mm-hmm. I had gotten to that place where I'm like, I legit want healing so desperately that I don't care what it costs me. If it yeah. costs me some relationships, fine. If it costs me a faith community, fine. But I I'm going to do whatever it takes to be well. And her response was so powerful because she just looked at me and said, why wouldn't we want you here? And this is when rehearsal is and we'll see you on Tuesday. And I was like, okay. I mean, amazingly loving and what the church should be. I mean, um, so you had a lot of addictions and hurts to start healing from and you actively, I mean, you put the time and the work in and that's such a good point. It's not just you accept the Lord and then you're healed and don't have all these things like, oh my, uh, yeah, I know. Um, and as far as like your eating disorder, I mean, I heard you, I think share on another podcast, like you're healed. It's not an issue anymore. I mean, did you find that that was an ins? Cause I've also dealt with an eating disorder. So that's why I'm always kind of curious about that part of mm-hmm. women's stories. So did you feel like that was an instant healing or was that? No, no. Okay. That was actually, that was one of the hardest ones because, um, I've actually never known anyone to just be immediately delivered from eating disorder. Me neither. That's why I'm asking yeah. you. I'm like, maybe she's the one. What's her yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, um, for me, what it was, well, like we have to eat to live, right? So yeah. that's why it's so hard. Like I don't have, if I take drugs out of my house and if I take alcohol out of my house, like I can set certain boundaries, but like without food, I'll actually die. Mm -hmm. So I think it was one of those things where I had to realize like, okay, the, the slow start to the process was this, is that I had to just let go of my image. You know, that was the first thing that the Lord really worked with me on and that he worked with me on through community. So I had people around me who loved me no matter what my pant size was because my skin looked awful the first year. You know, I had to gain weight because I was no longer binging and purging, but I didn't know how to stop binging. 
thing. Um, and so I was, I was also resurrecting all these things that were on the inside of me. So my, my um, heart and mind were looking for ways to cope, which often looks like me coping through food. Um, and so in that first year, especially it was so hard and I, and I had several relapses and actually one of my first relapses was, um, I went out of town to serve at a conference and it was beautiful. So many highs and like moments with God and encounters with people. And then when I came back, man, I crashed and burned so hard. And I was six months into my recovery and here I am having a relapse of binging and merging. And what I didn't realize is like, even in recovery, you have to manage the highs just like you manage the lows. So I was off my schedule. I was experiencing higher emotions than I normally would. And I just didn't know yet to balance it. I thought these highs would just lead me into a greater place of deliverance. And it was actually the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just didn't know how to manage highs and lows of life yet. I still had very black and white thinking. Um, and, and so much of my value was tied to what I do. Um, and so yeah. because of instead of who I am. So that first year was really rough. And it took four full years for me to feel like, okay, like I I've conquered this. It's not dominating my thoughts, you know? Um, right. And that's and a, and that's an encouragement. I mean, even yeah. though four years sounds could sound like a long time, but just to oh, other, right. but to others that like, it's not, if you have a relapse in six months or a year, you're not, Oh, it's not done. Like this is a no. long, long process. Um, and yes. longer for some than others. So I think yeah. I've heard you say though, that you feel right now that you're completely healed from yes. that, like not 100%. an issue, which, it's a non-issue. which yes. I, I believe you, but I'm, <laughs> but it's hard. Like, I feel like, okay, you're this tall, gorgeous woman. Mm-hmm. And so I think healing, I don't know. I just, I struggle with that one as a woman, like, it's such a hard thing to be totally over the body image thing. So I guess maybe the body yeah. image and eating disorder are a little bit different. Like you can still, it's just hard in this society, I would say for a woman yeah. like, to I mean, totally get past that. Yeah. And I think, uh, some, some ways to help with that, you know, there, I don't read magazines. Yeah, you, I know. I'm the same you know way I, mean? like, I just actually don't like, yeah, I don't read them. Um, I may pick up, you know, a trash you know, us weekly magazine at the airport when I'm traveling somewhere, but I don't read magazines. I'm very careful about what goes through my social media feed. You know, if I, if somebody's Instagram is utterly focused on their body and how they look and they're posting 900 photos of themselves 24 seven, I just don't follow them. Cause I'm like, I don't need that in my life. It's not adding anything. I don't want to experience jealousy and FOMO and make me feel like I'm not enough. Like to me, it's the new magazine. So I make sure that my feed is curated in such a way that I'm receiving good content that I'm learning from others that I'm growing. Then how Having people around me is so helpful. So, you know, I have two kids. Like, it's I've gone through so many body changes in the last like five years. Um, I moved to New York two and a half years ago from Los Angeles and LA is like, you know, it's, it's a place where you can work out all the time. You have healthy food options at your fingertips and New York is like land of bagels and coffee. And I love it. (laughs) That's right. And you get to wear sweats and winter clothes and all that. So cares. And it's great. And, um, but what's, what's sometimes challenging about that is that like, I don't, I don't have the the time or the energy to work out anymore, but I've had to just thank God for my recovery background and thank God for friendships because you realize like I'm my body is not the sum total of who I am like what I'm wearing and if everything matches and if I look perfect that doesn't define who I am so I did yeah. the hard soul work of going who am I really in Christ yeah. what is the sum total of who I am what is my value what do I contribute to society and then consistently rejecting and resisting those societal norms where my whole value is in my pants size or my whole value is in what I look like or my whole value is in whether I'm put together or not and if my shoes match my purse you know it's like I always have had to reject all of it. And it's been the healthiest thing that I could do. Um, And my husband is very supportive. Friends are very supportive. And without healthy community around us, I really think we continue to struggle because we think, again, that our values in in what we look like versus who we are and our beautiful relationships and the the families that we have and the, the purpose for which we've been called. And those things have now become so much greater. Oh, my goodness. Sorry about that. Um, have become so much greater than anything else in my life. And and for that, I'm very, very grateful. Yeah. And you have to be, I mean, amen to all you said. It's like, and you have to be intentional with all of yes. that or you can, the devil yes. will come back stronger and try to get you in those weaknesses. And yes. if you're not intentional with those truths and who you surround yourself with. Um, but I just, I think it's a lifelong process of a woman of being intentional with all of those things. Um, I, so I agree with you. sorry, we kind of got off. I didn't expect to get on the eating disorder road, but again, that's part of my story. So I'm like, Oh, I like to hear other women who have walked, um, that similar journey in their life. So, 
let's go back just a little bit. So you said yeah. that, um, you know, you spoke all of that truth to the worship leader and they still mm-hmm. wanted you. So you're in LA at that time. And I know we haven't even, and I don't know as far as your story goes, I don't know yeah. where the unplanned pregnancy and abortion yeah. falls into all that. So maybe you can just kind of take us down that road and that part of your story, um, how you ended yeah. up there. Uh- I'd love to. Well, you know, statistics in America show that one in four women have had an abortion, which also means that one in four men have had an abortion, although we Mm -hmm. never really talk about that side of it or hold men accountable the same way that we hold women accountable. But the abortion actually happened two weeks before I moved to Los Angeles. So I was still in North Carolina um, and I was working and realized like, man, my pants are getting tighter and I don't really understand what's going on and went to the... Um, I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go. That wasn't actually the whole truth, but I just was in so much shame and bound by silence that I didn't know who I could talk to or where to go. And so I went to a Texaco gas station. I bought a couple of pregnancy tests. I went into the bathroom and close to midnight, I found out I was pregnant. Mm. And so the next morning I made an appointment to have an abortion um, and and went and had that done, took care of that. And then and told my boyfriend at that time, like, I, I literally never want you to speak to me about this again. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to ever talk about it. I don't want to ever acknowledge that it happened. Like, let's just move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually the one time in my life that I would say, like, I really struggled with the will to live. Um, yeah. I really, you know, I had always wanted to be a mom. I never anticipated this happening. I never anticipated making a choice like this. And even as a believer growing up, um, you know, I, I just had a, a desire to not um, do that. You know, I didn't, I never thought this would be a part of my story. Well, and, so, and going back to what you just said, and you share that in your blog, which I'm going to share yeah. on the show notes, cause it's so powerful. And one of the best written yeah. responses I've seen to this, um, but you talk Thank about, you. um, like, like you just said that that was the time in your life that you, the one time that you struggled with the will to live. And that's, I mean, you have somebody that's already dealt with the rape and drug, I mean, yeah. all of that. So yes. you saying that about an abortion shows that this is not something that women just go do and move on with them, their lives. Like they, no, no. they are a victim too. And you, um, felt that firsthand. Um, yeah. so this, sh- and you weren't even, I mean, where were you feeling shame from just cause you weren't in a church at that time. So was it just, no, I wasn't. So, but you, just innately have that shame that you're like, we're never talking about that and we're moving on. Yeah. Um, I think part of it was, you know, being a woman having the desire to be married one day and to um, create life one day, you know, I'm I have a beautiful mother. She's so phenomenal. And so by her example, even just wanting to create a home and have babies at some point, you know, and so for me to be in a position to make this decision was one was just so detrimental. I actually didn't feel shame, you know, from society's choices. Cause at the time I wasn't around enough or any really of the, the pro-life type of people who are constantly talking to you about that agenda. Mm-hmm. And my church didn't talk about that growing up either. Um, and so it wasn't my faith. It was just me personally. I understood the weight of that decision. I understood that I was taking life. And for me, that is something that made me feel like I had lost the will to live. Um, and it was just one of those things where you're like, God, how could I have done? Like, how am I at this place, God, where this is my choice? Like, how did I get here? You know? So it was that thought running through my brain. So you, that's something that you, I'm assuming buried for years or how did you finally bring that to surface to tell somebody or start that healing process with that? Well, there was this, um, as I was going through the the healing and recovery process about a year and a half in, you know, I, don't, I think I had shared with people that I, by the, by that point I had shared with a few people that I had made the choice, but I had never really unpacked the choice. So it's mm-hmm. much more like this is a fact versus, Hey, this is me in the midst of that fact and how I really feel about it. I had not processed, processed or unpacked it about a year and a half into my recovery. I came across a book, um, that I cannot even remember the title, but bunny Wilson wrote it. And it's okay. a book basically about um, dating and taking like six months away from dating to just sort of focus on God um, and focus on his purpose for your life, which I personally desperately needed. I didn't need to be in a relationship and I had just broken up with a boyfriend and started to date other guys and realized like, you know what, as a young 22 year old, I could use a break. Like I could just stop dating some people mm-hmm. for a minute. Um, and so I, I made that choice. And in the book, she talks about abortion and she talks about um, preaching on a platform one time at a women's conference and the Lord pressing so strongly on her heart, the issue of abortion. And so she, at the end, just began to pray for women. And they had hundreds of women Mm -hmm. come down to the altar. Like she was so shocked. 
I had no idea so many women were dealing with this issue. And so what she did is she led women through this process of recovery um, where they acknowledge the, the baby. They acknowledge um, before God taking life. They acknowledge before God the need to repent for this and then take the time to name the baby and have um, like a ceremony, like a memorial service. And so I did that. I took the time to pray through that, to give my baby a name and to sit with a couple of friends in a living room and go through um, a memorialization of the baby and to acknowledge what I had done and to acknowledge that one day I'll be able to meet my child again mm-hmm. in heaven. Um, so it was this beautiful process. And then, you know, years later, I began to lead women through that very thing. And I have stood at many memorial services, both for uh, miscarriage and the issue of abortion um, or stillborn babies. Like I have led and officiated services and have walked women through their recovery journey. We're currently leading one here in New York for women who have gone through the issue of abortion or miscarriage. And many women have experienced both. Um, So sometimes people will ask me, why would you ever put those two in the (laughs) same group? Um, But part of, you know, if if you have any recovery background at all, you know, like you can be in a codependent group and have a woman who is experiencing an affair in her marriage. Her husband has cheated on her who, and another woman in the group is a woman who has, um, who is the other woman. And so we, we acknowledge our pain together. We sit together, we grow together and we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to villainize anyone else, which is so rampant in our culture today, but we don't Mm -hmm. give ourselves the opportunity to villainize anyone. We recognize that we all have brokenness and that brokenness leads us to make certain choices. Um, so that's kind of a little bit about my abortion story. Well, and I mean, (laughs) there's so many things I want to say. I mean, I'm tearing up as you're sharing it because it's like, there's so many women that I just want at that point that you're at, but they're not like, I know people that I'm one of the few that know about their abortions. And it's like, I just want them to get to that healing point because, um, and what you have gone through, and we're going to have a couple other ladies on on the show that lead, have actual Bible studies with some of the things that you're talking about that have written them. Um, but I think it's just so important in the Christian community to hear these ladies stories that have had them, um, and have that empathy and sympathy and love for them and know that, um, this, this isn't, yes, I'm just like you. I'm pro-life. I'm a Christian, but there's so much more to that. Um, and just saying that doesn't do anything. And it's like, so that's what I want you to speak into just a little bit. Um, I don't know. There's so many things here, Ashley, goodness, just, (laughs) I guess the Christian community too, as a whole, like why it's just, it's not enough just to go out there and post on Facebook. I'm pro-life and, you know, yeah. you know, all these other sinners. I mean, it's, it's, that's so much more damaging than it is it, good and shaming. So yeah. speak, speak into that a little bit, just, um, in where you stand. Yeah. You know, this whole, I was gutted the, um, the week of the, you know, that when the, the law from New York came down the pipes and, you know, America, particularly Christians just erupted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was difficult on multiple levels. One, you know, this is already happening in other States and I didn't see the same outrage right. when these laws were, were happening. Um, and then also just the visceral, like big, bad Babylon vibes that people mm-hmm. were putting on New York where it's like, wow, okay, we're, we're actually not Babylon, you know, we're <laughs> right. this big, bad city, you know, Colorado already is working this law. The girl who co-sponsored this bill or who, whose story inspired this bill had to go to Colorado to have her third trimester abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, this is already happening in other places. And so there was such a visceral reaction. So I felt a little bit protective of the state and city that I'm a part of. But then also, um, you know, it was difficult to watch because I think that while I am pro-life, I understand the nuance of people's choices. I understand that not everybody, you know, um, can have the privilege of being able to raise their baby with resources. Not everyone can, um, you know, has a respectful partner that loves them that will care for their baby. You know, people are making very, very difficult choices about their surroundings and their circumstances and their economic situation and their social structures that they're in. And so because of that, I think there has to be a little bit more room. And the church is also shouting at people without ever saying like, hey, you're also welcome here. And yes. and I think people would be shocked and stunned how many people, even in Christian leadership who have had abortions and don't even realize what they're saying and communicating. Um, or how many pastor pastor men, you know, like I said earlier, if one in four women have had an abortion, that means one in four men have had an abortion. So right. how many leader male leaders in the church are also dealing with this issue and have never told anyone and never talked about it. And another thing I want to say on this is, you know, the week that this was happening, we have had um, a couple of women in our 
our church to recently experience miscarriages. These are friends of mine. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, you know, some states classify, it's called a DNC when a woman has a miscarriage and they yes. have to, you know, help the baby come out. Many women who are listening would, would be familiar with that. And my goal is not to trigger anyone here. My goal is just to share that sometimes the classification of that DNC is actually an abortion. And that's how the doctor will refer to it in some states, New York being one of them. Interesting. Um, okay. And so that very week that this is happening, we had someone that we knew and loved who was experiencing what the, you know, had lost her baby and then had to have what the doctor was calling an abortion, which is a DNC in order to go through the process of keeping her body safe and keeping her healthy and keeping her whole. Um, and, and so imagine her response to all this reaction and the shame that she's feeling and like, wait, that isn't even my intention. That's not even what I wanted to do. That is not even what happened to me. This is how the doctor's classifying it. So yes, I know some people listening will think, well, that's just one case. You know, how do you explain the other 600,000 abortions? And I just want people to know I'm not trying to explain them. I'm sad. I'm grieved to the core at right. the loss of life every time, whether it's someone on death row or it is an abortion or it is someone, you know, a struggling immigrant on our borders, kids who are in cages, people like I'm, I'm, I'm pro-life all the way, like womb to tomb. And yes. you bring that up, which I love again in your yes. post, because it's like, yes. yeah, I'm pro-life, but what about all the other, like, yes, these babies, but why haven't I seen your Facebook posts about the sex trafficking or about the immigrants or the black men yes. being shot? So, and that's, yes. um, we're going to try to not get too riled up here, but that I'm so with you yeah. on all of this. And yeah. it's like, I just want to go off social media. And I, I mean, I have not had an abortion. I can't imagine if yeah. I had and seeing some of people I know, their posts, their judgmental post yeah. about this or them suddenly taking a stand that I've never heard them take on any other pro-life issue. Totally. Um, so yes. Yeah, so what you were just saying, yes, keep going. I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt, but I'm no, just no, like, I could okay. not agree with it's you. It's a dialogue. I so get you. Like, um, and I, I think most women, if they'd really stop and sit and think about it, if they know someone who's impacted by the issue, people are less likely to do these kinds of things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other thing is like, I, I love Walter Brueggemann's teaching and theology around things like justice. And I know justice is starting to become either trendy for some people or a curse word for others based on how it's it's weaponized in the media. But justice has always been the heart of God. It's not a trend. Right. It is the heart of the Father. And so I love Walter Brueggemann's teaching on justice. And one of the things he says that's a pervasive problem in Western evangelical culture of Christianity is that we have forsaken the, that we have um, divorced the idea of love of neighbor from love of God. Mm -hmm. And so our responsibility as a believer in Christ is to have love of neighbor. And originally when the 10 commandments were given, they were given for covenant community. So the purpose of the 10 commandments was actually so that you could love your neighbor. So if you mm -hmm. keep God in his rightful place, and if you do not use his name in vain, which does not mean that you use a cuss word GD, what that actually means when you take the Lord's name in vain, what that is actually saying is that you are using God's name to misrepresent his character. Mm. So when you don't do things like that, then you will be able to love your neighbor. If you have your eyes, if God is first place in your heart and you are concerned with the greater good of humanity, the the, the way you operate in the world will be one of concern for neighbor. It will go, hey, I don't want to cheat on my husband because I got to love God. And because of that, I need to love my neighbor or I don't want to be jealous of my neighbor. I need to thank God for what they have and expect him to deliver for me in my area of need because we have our eye fixed on God. So the 10 commandments is for covenant community, which equals justice. Like when we right. have love of neighbor, we will see justice at work. We will see justice operating, not just in our heart to heart connection or our love of one person, but also in our systems and structures in society at large. Like that's why God gave the 10 commandments. It wasn't so he could focus on individual hearts. It was also for the greater good of the neighborhood. And I think that's one thing in Christianity that's super difficult is that we have um, in some parts, because this is not true in every church. This is very true in a lot of the Christian um, culture that exists, but it's not true across, you know, this is not a broad sweeping statement. This is a sect of Christianity where we have inherited an individualized faith, this idea right. of personal salvation, that it's important for me to keep my heart clean. But what that does is, is make us want to keep every everyone else's heart clean and we become gatekeepers instead of people who are opening the gate to allow the good shepherd to minister to all. And God is not about this individual personalized salvation. That's not what he's about. He's right. about the greater good. And he cares about the connections between people and the connections between creation. That is how God designed it from the beginning. Right. You're, I mean, you're, you're spot, spot on in that. And what do you say then? I mean, I know what I say, but what do you say as far as, you know, we need, um, 
we need solutions and not opinions about yeah. abortions. So to those speak to people that are saying I am pro-life, you know, I've never not, not yeah. taken a big stand on anything before, but are suddenly pro-life. And yeah. I mean, what, what are some of the solutions that people can do instead of just posting their opinion? If that, yeah. if they are passionate or proclaim to be passionate about that, tell us what you can, what they can do because there's so yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, one thing I'll say, I, I commend you. I commend you for taking a stand. You know, I, I believe in taking a stand for justice. I, you will very often see me talking about racial justice and, you know, issues about sexism and things going on at our borders. Like, it's it's important to me. So good for you. Like, I'm mm-hmm. so happy that you want to take a stand. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think take a stand in a way that you can be heard. Yeah. You know, take a stand in a way that is not alienating you from others, but is actually opening up a dialogue for you to have the right to speak to people. And, and in addition to that, I think there's ways that we can love our neighbor. You know, you may have a mom that you're connected to. I'm not talking about going out and having a savior mentality and finding every single mom in a different neighborhood. I'm talking about finding people who are in your wheelhouse, who are already in your spheres of influence that you can bless, where it's like, yeah. man, I see that, that that husband is often out of town. I wonder if I could bring this mom food or care for her. Because there's many women who are married who have had um, abortions in their marriage because they just might be into their 40s, don't want to have a baby. Like there's there's different things. Like, how can you bring support? Is there someone who has need? Is adoption an option for you? It's not for everyone. You know, everybody doesn't feel called to adopt and that's okay. No one's putting any pressure on you to do that. But if it is an option, can you? You know, when you see um, young teen moms, is there an organization in your town that might be working with young people who have become pregnant but want to keep their babies? Is there an opportunity for you to mentor a young mom who just might be struggling where you're, you're 10, 15 years down the track, you've got teenagers, but you're like, man, I see you over there in Target with your two sweet babies who are two and three and you look like you're about to lose your mind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can you offer a, a word of wisdom to her? Can you offer relationship to her? that she can call you and you can go, you're not crazy. It's normal. You're going to make it through this. It's okay. You know, what, what are you doing to support other women? What are you doing to support other families? And are you communicating in a way that you can be heard? Are you starting a conversation or are you just blasting things on, on social media or blasting things in, in your faith community or blasting things in the people in the, in the conversations that you're having? So I think that's really important. And, um, two resources that I'd recommend. I recently discovered this, um, I've been having very intentional conversations with um, conservatives who are in my world, and, and I'm very much theologically conservative. You, that's a good thing for me to say, but at the same time, I tend to have very um, liberal civic policies based because I, I, I appreciate and love the separation of church and state, and I appreciate and love our, our freedom of speech. Um, so I, I discovered a podcast of one of my conservative friends called Pantsuit Politics. Okay. And man, I could not recommend it more highly. It is, um, it's Beth from the left and Sarah from the right. Oh, I'm excited to listen. I have not heard of it. Okay, pantsuit politics. Okay. Yes. It's the most reasonable, necessary dialogue I've heard. It's a beautiful conversation between two friends who refuse to name call, who refuse to villainize, and they are talking about the most difficult issue. Everything from abortion to immigration to, um, gosh, racism. I mean, they cover it all, and they talk about current day events. The podcast out, comes out twice a week, and okay. I have so benefited from their the way that they respect one another, the way that they care for one another in their conversation, and it has inspired me to continue remaining in deep, abiding relationship, even with people that I don't agree with and even with people who don't agree with me. Um, and so I would recommend that. And the other resource I'd love to, to share with you is um, a book called The Very Good Gospel. The Very Good Gospel? Okay. Yes. And it's by one of my mentors, Lisa Sharon Harper. And that would just give you a beautiful theology of loving your neighbor and okay. caring for people. Okay. So I highly recommend that. Okay. Resource. I've written them both down and we'll put both of those in the show notes. I'm a specific, yeah. I am excited to listen to that podcast because I love that because I feel oh, like, so good. I feel like as Christians right now, there are so many hot issues and Our, not speaking in love or just shutting off a disagreement does not get us anywhere. Totally. Um, and as far as the pro-life, I mean, I also really strongly feel like being pro-life isn't enough right now. Yeah, I mean, like you I said, agree. like, what are, what are you doing? I mean, it's so much deeper yeah. than just, um, typically these women getting abortions are not, you know, women with the strong marriage, finances, totally. healthy. I mean, it is, that's so much deeper. So what are you, what are you doing beyond just putting your opinion out there? And I think the other yeah. thing to speak into, like you're very, um, have brought up a couple times is the men, like yeah. the, the, the fathers to these children, we need men out there too, mentoring these boys. And we need, I mean, it's, 
the number of fatherless households in America, I mean, that's a whole other thing, but it just goes so much deeper. All of this does, um, I think is what what we're getting at with all of that. Um, and just, I want to go back around real quick because I would love Mm -hmm. for you to explain. And I know because I've read, but what exactly for the listeners that don't know that are pro-life, what exactly does the law in New York now say? Because it is not, and the statistics with it, I mean, you share those. It's not now that everybody's going to rush out and get third trimester abortions. So can you kind of just explain what the law in New York, since you, you, you live in New York, what does it actually say? Yeah. The details of the bill. Yeah, well, I, I would recommend that you read the bill. Like, okay. I, it's on my blog that you're going to share with everybody. Okay. And also in the in the episode of Pantsuit Politics, they actually go oh, they do. Line okay, awesome, awesome. And so okay. I feel like as a person who's not an expert yep. in the law, I, mean, I have some things to say about it in a second, but I would recommend that resource to you because they go through it line by line. But the okay. statistic is that 1.2... Um, percent of abortions are third trimester abortions, and I'm and and almost every single one of those is a case where the the baby's life is at risk, or the mother's life is at risk, or the baby has died, and you know different things that might be going on, or the baby is going to be born, um, you know, and unable to live. And and so I I hear very often in the Christian community, um, I hear this sentiment of well, but we just have to trust God, and we have to just put our hope in Him, and whatever happens, we can handle it. And I and while I agree with you from a Christian perspective, we also have to be respectful that not everyone shares our faith. Right. And so asking someone who does not have their hope in God to do something that is unimaginable. For someone who has their faith in God, it is still unimaginable. I just think we have to be so mindful of what we're saying and communicating. We, Not everybody shares our faith. Not everyone shares our conviction. Not everyone has experienced the, the tangible presence of God in the same way that we have. And so I think it's important for us to recognize and give grace and room for women to make choices. Yeah, um, that's, a, so, that's yeah. such a good point because, um, I mean, that kind of leads me to the last thing to talk about is the church's response. And if, if we're going into this, assuming that everybody believes that, which is not the case, we're totally wrong in our approach. Um, so if we're assuming that we want to get these women to Christ, um, doing it shamingly or all of that is not going to happen. So what do you think, um, or what do you advise as a church's response to this, I guess, as a healthy response to these women Mm -hmm. and loving and not shaming? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first thing I thought of as you're sharing is the story of Jesus where, um, and the woman caught in the act of adultery. And so, you know, the, you don't see the man anywhere. You don't see him Mm -hmm. about to be stoned. You don't see him standing, being held accountable by that community of men who wanted to stone her. And so I love Jesus's response. He just says, he who has not sinned cast the first stone Mm -hmm. and they begin to drop their stones and walk away. And so I think before we start shaming other people for their choices, we need to remember that we also are broken and that we also have made horrible choices and that none of us should be held to the worst mistake that we have ever made. Nobody's sum total of their value and sum total of what we're going to nail them to the wall for should be the worst moment in their life. Um, And so I think that that's really important for us. And then the second thing um, is that we begin to hold men accountable. And, And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, I I never think abortion should be in a situation where people are criminalized for this decision um, because I think that's a very dangerous precedent for women. I think it opens up a whole lot of things that we can't unpack in our final moments together. But what I will say in holding men accountable is just to begin to to remember that the men in your faith communities could have experienced this, one in four men. And remembering that there needs to be places for him to share his past and share his pain. And for, if we're going to dialogue about women's issues, we have to remember this is also a men's issue that women and men have sex together and it creates a life. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I think we have to begin to have more holistic conversations about sex and have more holistic conversations about relationships and have more holistic conversations about abortion because it includes men. And if we're going to constantly be holding women accountable and constantly be shaming women, we need to remember that there's, there's a second person involved. And very often the women that I speak to their, their partner at the time was the one encouraging them to have an abortion. And so this is a very real part of the story. And after I posted my blog, several men came to me and said, this is a part of my story. And is there anything, are there resources available for men? I need to talk about this. I need to, to reckon with this decision that I made in my life. Or in, in one case, this decision I encouraged the, the woman I was dating to make. And so I think holding men accountable, creating safe space for people to share um, is huge in, in 
the church's response. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, your point about the men is really profound. I mean, I hadn't thought about that angle as much as you're bringing it to light today, but you're exactly right. And I think that's a huge part the church is missing um, that will hopefully start to change. And as you mentioned, you host um, an abortion and miscarry recovery course. And do you find that more churches are starting to host that? I mean, I've never been to a church that hosts, that has anything like that, but I'm kind of, but I'm kind of surprised I haven't, but again, I'm living in the Bible. I'm living in the Bible belt right now. So um, (laughs) I don't know that that is probably something that they want to even admit. Um, Sure. Well, I will say to give a hand clap to the Bible Belt because they do have such remarkable programs. But I think the church as a whole um, really struggles to address this issue. Yeah. And also, you know what else? It's it's, And I won't put it all in the church because honestly, it takes someone who has really gone through the hard soul work and feels called right. to journey with women. And I just happen to feel called. In my old church, they happened to have some spaces where women felt called and felt comfortable enough to share what they had gone through and share about the choice that they had made. And so I do think it's happening in churches in America for sure, but I don't know how often and I don't know how public it is because it's also like there's an incredible amount of discretion that's used for the women who are attending. We make sure that their privacy is respected, that it's safe space, that no one knows they're there if they don't want to be known. Um, So, you know, there's a whole lot that goes into it. I don't know that it's the church's fault or maybe just society as a whole. I think that we struggle to deal with trauma. We struggle to deal with recovery. We struggle. um, We'd rather just have things buttoned up and fixed, you know, right. but that's not reality and that's not humanity. Like that, that I'm never buttoned up and fixed to be frank with you. I seem like <laughs> right. 30 times on the train when someone gets too close to me. Do you know what I mean? So. <laughs> I'm right there. I'm right there with you. Yes. It's, it's a, it is a process, <laughs> um, yes. but that's a great point. What you just said about it takes what it takes somebody to rise up yeah. to, let their mask down that that's their story and to start that. And I think that kind of comes for full circle with you, you know, your process of dropping those masks and encouraging other women to, because that's yeah. what allows us to help others. Um, yeah. and that's what you've done with your life. And goodness, there's so many more things I could talk to you about. Cause I know you are also just somebody that is really involved with the mass incarceration and that issue and sex trafficking. So you're a girl after you're a girl after my own heart, Ashley. Yeah. So I have just, um, <laughs> love being able to talk to you just for this hour. Um, and tell us just a little bit as we wrap up here, just, you have a book coming out. Um, do you want to just share a little bit what you can about that? Um, yes, I'd love to. Okay. So yes. I've been, um, I'm a blogger. So my blog is ashabercrombie.org. And then I have a book coming out with Baker books, um, in October on October 1st, which I'm very, very excited about. And we'll be announcing more about it on social media in the, in the months to come. Okay. If you want to connect with me over social, my Instagram and Twitter is Ash Abercrombie. And then I'm over on Facebook as well. And I would love to connect with any of you guys. Feel free to send your questions. Feel free to, to dialogue with me about this issue. Okay. And if there are women listening that have walked, um, have a similar stories of yours, you are very responsive as far as, um, you know, if they want to discuss or start a group or those yeah. sort of things. Um, so, and then tell me, uh, your podcast name, I know your podcast yeah. name, but tell us, give that a little shout out to you here. Oh, uh, our podcast is the most fun. My dear friend, Tiffany Bloom, who is in Tacoma, Washington, we partnered together and we have a podcast called why though, to yes. answer all the, the questions of life down to the smallest, most annoying things up to the big, huge existential crisis questions that we have and we would love for you guys yes I love it it's a great it's a great one um so yes highly recommend it like I said we'll list all of these on the show notes so um well we'll wrap up here Ashley and I just think I thank you again just for being so vulnerable and honest um with all that you've said today and that you're willing to share about your life story it's so my honor and privilege thank you for inviting me to be a guest on your podcast In her upcoming book set to be released this fall, Ashley details more of her story, her long recovery process, and finally finding healing in the Lord. If you'd like to hear more from Ashley, you can tune into her weekly podcast, Why Though?, which she co-hosts with Tiffany Bloom. It's one of my favorites and worth listening to. Ashley also has two seven-day devotionals, Finding God in Hard Places and How to Find God in the Change, that can be found in the YouVersion Bible app. The links to all of these can be found in the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com.